Before we begin, as you've seen, a new emphasis, and we've been talking about it, uh, this uh, emphasis on the family, and over the next uh, few weeks, I'm going to be sharing messages on everything from marriage, and by the way, Allison, there are workshops, and we want to encourage you to sign up for so they begin next Sunday at 5 o'clock hour. Uh, Allison and I are going to be doing a workshop on, on marriage uh, and God's uh, design for marriage, and uh, so we'll do that on the 7th and then part 2 on the 14th, so, but that's just one of a whole bunch. There'll be parenting uh, workshops, there'll be um, living successfully for God as a single, uh, they're going to be dysfunctional, should I say dysfunctional workshops? <laughs> going to be some dysfunctional workshops, so some of you will fit right in. Uh, but on the dif- if you've come out of a dysfunctional background, there's going to be some stuff. So a lot of things for you to choose from, as well as, again, I'll be sharing messages uh, as it relates uh, to this whole. Uh, so why is it important? It's important because, listen to this, as the family goes, so goes a nation. Did you know that? As a family goes, we've got, we've got uh, evidence to support that. Carl Zimmerman did a study uh, many years ago about... Um, what he did is he took civilizations that had collapsed and he studied what were the factors. And here's what was interesting. In all of the cultures that collapsed, there was a parallel with the collapse of the family. With all of the cultures that collapsed, there was a parallel with the collapse of the family. And he noticed in his research that there were eight patterns that emerged. Listen to them. Number one, marriage... uh, in, in these cultures that declined, marriage lost its sacredness and was frequently broken by divorce. Number two, tradition, the traditional meaning of marriage and the marriage ceremony is lost. Number three, feminist movements abound. Number four, increased public disrespect for parents and authority in general. Number five, acceleration of juvenile delinquency, promiscuity, and rebellion. Number six, refusal of people with traditional marriages to accept family responsibilities. Number seven, growing desire for an acceptance of adultery. And number eight, increasing interest in and the spread of sexual perversions and sex-related crimes. That sounds like where we are, doesn't it? And he noticed that these eight patterns emerged from all of these cultures historically that collapsed, these eight patterns. I think we're living there today. And with all the confusion about, about family and relationships and identity that's going on in our world, I'm not sure there's a subject more important than what I'm going to be talking about over the next uh, several weeks, particularly in light of us knowing what does God say about it all. You might think, well, is it really, is it really that big a deal? Well, yes, it is, uh, and, and that's why in our world and in our culture in particular, we see an agenda that has emerged uh, and continues to emerge by so many groups and academics and cultural influencers that are all determined to try to redefine and to under, uh, undermine what the, the family is, and I, I think there are reasons that they do that. Number one, because I think it is an assault Uh, from the enemy of our soul to take down marriage because marriage and family are so important to the nation to the culture I think it is because the God designed marriage and family is the very first institution God ever established did you know that marriage and family were the first institution that God ever established and so it, it 
it stands to reason the enemy would love to take down this institution of God. Uh, another reason is that the God-designed family is the foundation of stability for a nation, as I've shared with you through that research of Carl Zimmerman. And so, again, as the family goes, so goes a nation. And then the God-designed family shapes the boundaries of morality and education and worship. You see, the task of the family is to preserve and pass on. I'll talk about that a little bit this morning. The truth of God in order to prevent people from defying the way of their creator. And so for all of these reasons and many more we could list, the enemy wants to take down this institution of family, which makes it all the more important, especially in the age and hour we're living, that we get it right. And uh, so our text talks a little bit about God's, well, it talks a lot about God's design for the, for the family, God's plan for the family. And that's what I wanna, want us to read this morning. If you're physically able to do so, stand with me as we read our text, beginning verse 1, chapter 6 of the book of Deuteronomy. It says, now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God you and your son and your son's son by keeping all uh, his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear therefore O Israel and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be uh, on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, Lord, would you take your word and speak to us this morning from it? Would you teach us and instruct us? Father, would you help us to understand your plan for the family, for our lives? Father, help us to get it right so that we can continue to be influential for you in this culture that we live. Speak now, Father, we're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, the passage we just read is a part of Moses' farewell address. He won't be with Israel much longer, and he's kind of giving them some final instructions before they are to go on into the promised land. Joshua will lead them into the promised land, but what he's essentially doing is saying, here's my final, my final kind of uh, farewell address to you, and there's some things that you need to make sure you understand as you go on into this land that God has given you. And so he gives them these commands and these statutes, and they're from God, and Moses is just passing them on. That was his role. That was his responsibility and it's interesting that, the, that in these uh, uh, rules, these laws, these statutes, these commandments, we see the family is one of the central themes. He emphasizes that. And there's a reason I think you'll get as we go on in the message uh, today. But essentially it's this, that we have this responsibility to pass on the truth of God from one generation to the next generation. And the institution to do that is the family. By the way, it is not the responsibility of the school system to pass on God's values to the next generation. Well, I hope they do, 
We started a school a few years ago because we believe strongly in education and our responsibility. But first and foremost, the responsibility begins where, class? In the home. It begins with us. Did you know, while the church is to be a source of that, and we have certain responsibilities, as I'll mention in this message, to invest in the generations that have been entrusted to us, still the home is the first place where where the rules, the commands, the statutes of God are to be reinforced. That's why your family, that's why your home, whether you're, uh, you may be a single parent, say, does that apply? Yes. These things are our responsibilities to pass on from generation to generation. And so Moses is giving them some instruction uh, about this. And he uses a word, by the way, in this passage that describes the sharpening of a knife. In other words, like the, the idea of, of etching something in stone or carving something into a stone, into a whetstone. It carves in the, the truths. And the idea is that we carve these truths into the, the lives of those people in our homes, in our families. We carve them there. We put them there so that they're lasting and so that they're permanent. And, and of course, we do that with our kids. You know... There's nothing in this passage that speaks to some of the foolishness of the modern age we're living in that basically says, no, our responsibility is to say to the generations coming behind us, there are a lot of different options. I'm just going to teach you what all the religious ideas and options are out there, and then I'm going to just let you kind of make up your own mind. There's nothing of that in the Scripture. Our responsibility is to invest what God's truth is into the generations coming behind us. I had a person say to me one time, well, you're indoctrinating. I said, you better believe I am. That's exactly what I'm doing. I'm indoctrinating the truth of God into my kids and my, uh, and my grandkids. I want them to know the truth. Because, I look, I can't count on the world to to pass on the truth of God to the generations coming behind me. And you can't either. And by the way, I'm not saying you ought to be mad about... Look, never get angry at lost, a lost culture acting lost. But don't expect a lost culture to do what only God's Word can do. And that's why we have this responsibility. And that's why being the family, and uh, um, not just the family of God... But being the family is so important in our culture. And against that kind of backdrop, I want to give you seven things this morning. All right? Number one, I want you to see in this passage the practice of the family. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. To do what? That's the practice. To do the, the statutes, the commands, the truths of God. Verses 1 through 3, talk about that. Here's your responsibility. Moses says this farewell dress. As you go into the promised land, I want you to make sure that you are practicing the commands and the statutes of the Lord. And particularly note verse 2, obedience to the commands of God are based in the fear of the Lord. Did you notice that? Fear the Lord and keep His commands. Now, he's not, in this case, he's not talking about live in terror of God. Do the commands because you're living in terror of God. And there, are, there are times we ought to be living in terror of God. And there's a sense in our element where we've lost that kind of fear and terror of God. Hello? But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about out of your deep sense of reverence for God. 
Because you revere him so much, guess what? You trust him. And because you trust him, when God says, here's what I want you to do, here's how I want you to build your life, here's how I want you to build your family, you go, all right. God, I, I, I trust God. I revere God. I know God has it right. Nobody in here, I suspect, think, thinks God doesn't know what he's doing. And so because of that, what we do is we say, so I trust God. Therefore, I'm going to, out of my intense reverence for him, I'm going to put in motion what he has told me to do. In fact, you might say an all-field kind of reverence for God is the greatest demonstration of obedience because we we live in awe of him we say we we will do uh, what he wants and so in the, the context this means that God's decrees are to set the agenda for our families it's like Joshua in 24 verse 15 when Joshua said choose this day who you're going to serve but as for me and my house we will serve the Lord so the practice of the family is to obey the word and instructions of God because we revere him and we trust him and then that leads to the second thing I want you to see the prosperity of the family look at verse three be be careful then to do them look at this the prosperity did you notice this statement that it may go well with you that it may go well you see whether Israel prospered or struggled would be connected to the first thing we talked about. If they obeyed those things, if they did those things, if they were obedient in those things, the laws, the statutes, the commands of God, it, 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 then God said, then it'll go well with you. I will reward that. That's what God said. If you want it to go well, and I didn't say that you want to encounter any difficulties. That's not what he's saying. But if you want it to go well in your life, in your home, in your family, guess where it starts? It starts with practicing so that you can experience the prosperity. I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel stuff that we sometimes hear out there today. Well, just claim whatever you want and God has to deliver that. That's not what he's talking about here either. He's talking about if you want it to go well in your life, uh, in, in your uh, your home and, family, and it doesn't mean no, no pit hole I'll talk about that uh, uh, later but it just means you say yeah the other alternative is if you don't obey guess what you can guarantee it's not going to go well you get that so the prosperity of the family now you know there's a there's a lie that the devil wants you to believe and even wants you to believe it in your family especially if you have some kind of heartache or hardship in your family and it's this lie that God really what he he gives you these rules he imposes his these commands and these statutes on you because God is the great cosmic killjoy and what he wants to do is make your life as miserable as possible. Do you trust me? If you do, you obey me, and I'm going to make you miserable. And that's kind of what the devil tries to put in our brains, isn't it? Yeah, following Jesus, it sure is tough. I, I want to tell you something. You think it's tough sometimes following Jesus? It is. You try living without him. You think it's tough? See, you're in a broken, fallen world. You, you, you think it's tough, you try, to, you try to, to live without him in this culture. And so, and so the devil tries to convince us that following Jesus is going to be uh, uh, this life of great misery. It, life is tough in a broken world, but it's better with Jesus. 
It's better with Jesus. And that's what he wants uh, them to understand, us to understand. And the devil just simply wants you to think God's going to make you, you, you miserable. But there's, there's some reasons that you and I should, should follow. I mean, there's, uh, look, God loves you. He is your heavenly father. There was an old show that when I was young, I remembered, and I mean very young, I remember. It's called Father Knows Best. I want to tell you something. It really is true in the kingdom sense. Your father knows best. And that's one of the reasons that you and I should obey and then pass that on to our kids and our, our kids' kids. and that Because father does know best. The father does know best. He really does. And the reason that he tells you to obey is not to ruin your life, not to restrict your life, not to rob you of joy and satisfaction. The reason, the reason God has boundaries for you is to protect you from danger. You're not as smart as you think you are. And so God has these boundaries for our life because of that. We're just not, we're not as sharp as we think. And God really loves us enough to protect us. You know what? With my daughter when she was growing up and with my grandsons now, there are times when I will say and, and said, no, you can't do it. Don't touch that. Don't pick that up. Don't go over there. Don't do that. Why did I do that? Because I wanted to restrict them of joy. Right? You know that's not true, right? Why did I do that? I wanted to protect them so they would live. And, and, so, and that's the way God is with you. And so he has these boundaries. And you and I don't always understand the boundaries, but God does. <clears throat> when you get to heaven, you're not going to have a debate about boundaries. You, you're not going to have a conversation with God saying, God, now, you know, okay, I'm... I'm here, but, you know, I had some concerns. You put some boundaries in my life. You're not going to do that. First of all, you're going to go, oh, those, oh, that makes sense. I didn't see it at the time. When you enforce boundaries in the lives of kids or grandkids or anything, you know there's sometimes you put boundaries there and you can't explain them. But you just know the boundaries, right? Well, God knows that about you. And so he gives these rules, not to restrict, but he gives them to protect you from danger. He gives them to provide for your welfare. He gives them to help you grasp the purpose and meaning of your existence. And he gives them to prosper you with peace and a life that works. That's what that's all about. The devil wants you to believe everything other than that. Now here's the third thing that we see. So, we see, we see the, uh, the prosperity of the family. We see the practice of the family. Third, we see the passion of the family. Look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. This is the same statement that Jesus used in the New Testament to encompass the full duty of man. There are people today, and don't you listen to them, that are telling us that they're preaching it from pulpits that the Old Testament is just a collection of ancient writings, not reliable anymore. Don't you believe that at all? Jesus, you know where Jesus, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He, this is what he picked. This past, Deuteronomy, this is, Jesus quoted the Old Testament. Don't you ever believe it's just a collection of ancient writings? It is not. It is the Word of God. 
Jesus quotes it many times. He refers to it many times. And this is when Jesus in the New Testament, when the Pharisees tried to trap him, they said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest commandment is this, that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and second is likened to it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. On these two rest all the other laws. That's what Jesus said. This is the passage he was referring to, the great commandment right here. It's what he's talking about. And, and in, in doing that, he's saying, what does he say? What is the key to it all? He says, love. Love God. The passion or love for God. And he says, how is that characterized? He, he, here, three ways. Our heart. And by the way, in the Hebrew, in this particular usage, uh, the heart was less about the seat of our emotions. Sometimes it is about the seat of our But in this case, it's more about our intellect and our will. In other words, here's how I'd say it. Love the, Lord your, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Why? It's about your intellect. Because when you think about it, it just makes sense. It just makes sense. Love Him with all your heart. Love Him with your intellect. Love Him with your will. By the way, you, when your will gets involved, it's about a decision. So you make a decision to love the Lord your God with all your, your heart all right, my will, I choose. I'm, I want to tell you, there are times when you choose, when you choose love. I've done a lot of marriage counseling through 40-something years, and one of the things I've told couples, especially in an age today where there's, there, there's not the depth of commitment that we sometimes would like to see in marriage, sometimes marriage is about a commitment, not about a feeling. Sometimes it's about a commitment. You know, it's a commitment. I made a commitment. It's about a commitment. It's not just about a feeling. Now, feelings are great, by the way, in marriage, and I, you know, and that's it's worth having feelings in marriage. Okay, don't ever, guys, because I can't imagine a woman saying it, but I can imagine some guy saying, "You know what? I don't feel love for you, but I, I've made a choice to love you." That will get you thrown out real fast. Don't don't say that. We'll talk about that in the marriage workshop, but. Uh, that, that's probably not a good approach, guys, okay? But sometimes in your heart you go, this is a commitment, I made a commitment, this is a commitment. It's a commitment of my will. Well, do you know sometimes with God you have to say, God, I, I choose, I make a commitment to love you. Because your feelings are unreliable, aren't they? They go up and down, up and down, up and down. They're not reliable. So sometimes you're saying, it makes sense to love God. What's the alternative, class? So, so he says we're to love him with our, our heart. We're to love him with our soul. And here the idea of soul is, is a synonym for all of life. It means your, your appetite, your emotions, and, and, and every conceivable part of you. I will love him with, with all of me. And then with my might, this reflects intensity that characterizes my love for God. In, in other words, our love for God is not to be a half-hearted kind of love. There's a lot of passion in our world today, isn't there? I mean, we're, we're, all of us have passions, and passions aren't bad. The question is, do we have the right kinds of passions? I mean, there's a lot of passion. We have passion for sports. You can't live in this state and not have passion for sports, I think. Or somebody will check you out about it, won't they? I had a man that moved here from Alabama. I grew up in Alabama, been in Texas, lived in Texas, ministered in Florida and Georgia, and all, uh, lived in all those places. I've never seen anything like this. 
And I had a guy tell me, he, he said to me, and so I, I, you know, I grew up here, but, but I, I got it. I understand. I used to tell people that thought they were passionate about sports in my church in Florida, you don't even know passion about sports. You have to live in Alabama because we don't have anything else. And, uh, but this man, not too long ago, moved here, and I was welcoming him, and he, 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 I, I said to him, I said, so, have you settled in? I, well, we're getting settled in. I said, uh, what's your experience? He said, well, one of the first things that happened is that we were asked who our team was. Maybe some of you, uh, who's our team? And you know there are only two choices, uh, it seems like. Uh, and, and, and so he thought that was kind of funny. I said, no, I said, that, that's going, that happens to everybody that moves here. We have passion for all kinds of, we have passion for, for possessions and material things. We have passion for music. We have passion for, for our, the things we like to do, hobbies. We even have passion for our vocation. None, none of that is wrong. It's not wrong to have passion for those things. The question is, and this is when it gets uncomfortable, do you have that kind of passion for God? And only you can answer that. And I want to tell you something. That kind of passion makes a difference in your home. Where's your passion? Moms and dads, your children will often become passionate about the very same things that you're passionate for. What are you passionate about? And then number four, that leads me to the next thing, the priorities of the family. Because your passions will produce your priorities. Look at verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. These things shall be your priority. What are your priorities? You see, your priorities must never be determined by the latest trends or the, the most popular polls. You know, I read something not too long ago about trends that say, and I don't know how they arrive at their conclusion, but new trends occur every 8 to 12 weeks. So that means you may be trendy about something right now, and in eight weeks, it's, it's old. It's past. Your, you know, think about that. You know, you know, your wardrobe may be trendy right now, and in 12 weeks, you're outdated. It will come back. We pray not leisure suits, but it will come back. A lot of, you know, uh, please, no, God forbid. But they tell us that it changes that fast. So we don't develop, we don't de develop priorities based on that. We don't determine our priorities by the opinions of friends or colleagues or, or our peers. We don't develop them by the latest polls. We don't say what's most popular now. And so there's one source of, of, our, of our priorities, and that is what does God say is priority? And then how do you keep the main priorities, the main kinds of priorities for you and for your family? Well, I think pretty simply you you let the Word of God shape the priorities of your life and of your family. Uh, how does the Word of God shape your life and family? Well, number one, you've got to elevate the Word of God. Well, what do you, how do you view this book? If you're going to shape your family, your life, by the priorities of God, you're going to have to elevate this book in a culture that is increasingly denying the validity of this book. You're going to have to decide, do I believe it or not? 
Billy Graham, and I don't have time to tell you this story. I'll just give you a nutshell. Billy Graham came to a crisis in belief early in his ministry. He had a friend who told him that he couldn't trust the Bible. And Billy Graham, it created a, a, a faith crisis in his life. And while he was in California on a, in a retreat speaking there, he, he went out into the woods and he said, God, I don't understand all this book. He said, but I can't live this way. And he said, so I choose, I've, I've decided I'm going to believe this book. I'm going to believe all of this book. And you know what? When he did that, he got free. The burden was lifted. And do you know shortly after that, God catapulted his ministry. That's what launched his ministry. The great Los Angeles crusade, 1949. And on, it was there. When he decided, he said, I'm going to elevate this book. I'm not going to listen to what the people say out there. I'm going to look at this book. I know it is your word. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to set my values and my lives to it. Well, I think it worked out. What do y'all think? you got to elevate the Word of God. you got to believe uh, uh, the Word of God with your family. You elevate it before your family. You believe it with your family. You affirm it. You, you affirm. Now, be careful here because this is, this is not ultimately where you want to go, but it is where you want to uh, 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 reinforce uh, God's Word in your life and in your family. It is saying this. It is saying uh, we, uh, the, the Bible, we not only hold it in high esteem, we believe it has the words of life. Do you remember when, when uh, some people started leaving Jesus? He was teaching them the truth of God, and they started leaving him. And Jesus turned to his disciples, and he said, Will you leave, us? Will you leave me also? Do you remember what Peter said? He had this great line. He said, Lord, Master, where else would we go? Only you have the words of life. That's the word of life. And so we elevate it before our family. Then we affirm it. It is the word of life. It's where we get our values. And then here it is. Number three, you practice the word of God before your family. You practice it. You see, don't stop with just saying we elevate it, we, uh, we affirm it, we believe it. Listen, take it the next, to the next level. Practice it before your family. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you re- richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So I ask you, do you have a high view of God's word in your family? If you don't, don't expect your family to take the word of God seriously. Don't You say, well, pastor, I've had people say to me, pastor, we have tried to order our home by the Word of God. We've tried to make it priority. We have elevated it, and we've, we've lived it out as best we can. And still, we've got, we've got kids or family members that have rejected it and have rebelled against it. What did we do wrong? I've counseled with families that were heartbroken because they thought, we got a prodigal in our family. What did we do wrong? We tried our best to make the God's Word the standard. You didn't do anything wrong. They were prodigal. You imagine what they'd have been like if you'd done nothing. And don't quit. Don't give up. Because you've got a prodigal in your family doesn't mean they will always be a prodigal. You put the Word of God in there. You let the Word of God do its work. It may be a lot longer than you hoped or think, but you let the Word of God. I wish I could tell you some stories uh, about about the prodigals. I've seen so much of it where they came back around and it's because the truth was put in them. Look, if you've got a prodigal, it, it may not mean that you, didn't, you had a low view of Scripture or that you didn't believe it or you didn't practice it. Remember, the Bible says rebellion is bound up in the heart of a child. But I'll tell you this, you change the odds. 
you change the odds and you plant the you plant the right stuff that will enable them to circle back well let me move on beyond priority the next thing i want you to note is the and a little play of words here the passing on you notice it says that we're to pass it on the passing on of the family that you shall teach them diligently this statement itself is a command that declares a responsibility that we have not a suggestion when he says teach them diligently that's not oh here's a good suggestion now as you as you go forward here's a good teach the children teach the next generation and the generation after that teach them diligently that's not pass it on to them if you want to it's not a suggestion it's a responsibility God's plan for the family is that each generation is to invest the truth in the next generation. And this is our responsibility before God to build a kingdom kinds of families. So God entrusts to us His commands and His instructions so that we can pass them on to those coming behind us. And by the way, if we don't pass them on, who's going to? I firmly believe that the condition of our culture today in its morals and its behavior actually reflects, I hate to say it, but a poor job in passing the baton to the next generations. I'm afraid that we haven't taken that seriously enough, our responsibilities there. And I think that's why we see some of the demise and the breakdown. It certainly goes back to like what I share with you from Carl Zimmerman and the breakdown, the parallel, the breakdown of a culture and the breakdown of the family parallel uh, uh, as they coincide. I, I think maybe we haven't done as good a job as we, as we could have done and can do. And we're not finished, and so we can. And, and by the way, you're sitting here today because somewhere... At some time, somebody passed it on to you. Somehow. You say, well, I, I just went to church and I, I, you know, I heard the sermon and I got saved or something like that. Well, somehow somebody passed something on that you could even get there and hear a sermon or that that preacher could even preach a sermon. We're all the recipient of that, which is a reminder of our responsibility to pass it on as well. And if we don't, again, who will? So how, does, how do we do that? He says diligently. That is the idea of being intentional and consistent. It is, goes back to that idea I shared with you earlier about etching into the hearts of the generations that are coming behind us. And that takes us to the next thing. That's number six, the proclamation of the family. You see this in verse 7? He said, you shall teach them diligently to your children. shall talk of them, talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. That's about the proclamation. What, that's about your conversation. You see, Moses not only tells us to pass the truth on, but he tells us, he tells us three ways to do it. Number one, talk, talk them out. What kind of conversations characterize your home and your family? And this is more of a, the idea of a formal kind of thing where... It, it, it's intentional. The conversation about God, the conversations are about, about God are intentional. Do you talk intentionally about those things? And here, here's a, it, it, it's kind of like the picture of a family that's sitting down around a table, and maybe it's even to eat, but they talk about the things uh, of God. You say, yeah, we tried that, Pastor, and the kids just roll their eyes back, and, 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 uh, and, and food drains out of their mouth as we talk about that thing. It's okay, let food fall out of their mouth and let their eyes roll back. You're putting stuff in you don't even realize. 
And by the way, they will remember those conversations down the road. One day, they will, when you thought they weren't remembering, but they will remember down the road. Or they'll hit some crisis in life, and they'll remember those times where they sat together with the family around the table. You know, one of the ways you can do this, we prepared the devotion. Y'all saw the devotion? Go by and pick up a devotion book. It's designed for the entire, this entire family month em, em, emphasis. And pick that devotion. That's a wonderful way to have a conversation around a table or, uh, or where. Turn off the television for a while or the internet or that sort of stuff. You, you know, and say, we're going to have an intentional conversation. I, I don't mean you preach to them. That's not what I'm talking about. Or to one another. But you just talk about what God is doing conversationally. What, what God has done in your life. Something God has taught you. Uh, what is he, he doing? I know it sounds real simple and it's harder than it is. But it, if you don't do it, it's never going to get done. And it won't get easier. So uh, talk them out. And then walk them out. That means along the road. Did you notice he said when you're walking along the road? What is this? So the, the, when I say talk it out, I, I'm talking about it in more intentional. It, when I say walk it out, it's those casual kinds of moments where God becomes a part of the conversation. You're going through the regular routines of your life and there are opportunities for you to talk about God or reaffirm something God is doing or isn't that neat how God did this for our family or did this. Or and you talk about it. You talk about it not just with the kids. You talk about it with your spouse. You know, I think God is doing... You know why a lot of couples can't have conversations like this? Because they never started and they feel awkward but they can talk about everything else you got to start this just like you start our things and then it will become uh, more uh, uh, more natural and by the way you may talk about some of these things and find some tension or resistance in your family and uh, because they're not used to it or they haven't done it or it produces some conviction which isn't always a bad thing by the way so talk them out, then walk them out in the routines of life, you, you talk, and then live them out. This is a little bit different. Did you notice where he says, when you lay down and when you rise up? You know what he's talking about? Here's what I'm talking about when I say uh, live them out. I, this is about consistency, not perfection. You're not perfect. You're not going to be perfect. No perfect Christians. One pastor asked that, kind of, anybody here perfect? A man sitting on the second row raised his hand. He said, Bob, you're perfect. He said, no, pastor, I'm just sitting in for my wife's first husband. Y'all are slow. <laughs> but live them out means there's consistency in your life. There's a cons there, your life is consistent. It's not perfect, but it is consistent from lying down to rising up. That's the proclamation. Our lives are proclaiming a message to the family and to our families. And then the last thing, y'all didn't think I would get to number seven, did you? The last thing I want to close with is the post. Again, a play on word. The post of the family. He says in verses 8 and 9, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house. He also said you shall bind them on your hand and on your forehead. And, the, and by the way, the reference to that is symbolic. And you can go look this up. In Judaism, 
Uh, and it's still, this is still practice in Israel in particular. You can see it frequently at the Wailing Wall and some of those places by those who practice Orthodox Judaism. You will see that they'll have a leather strap around their arms and all the way to their hand, and it binds a little wooden box right here. It'll be on their hand. It's, uh, that, that little box is called a phylactery. And inside there will be a scripture, uh, typically from this passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. He is one God. That's called the great Shema. And typically it will be from this passage we just read. It will be right there. And it says, and bind them on your forehead. You'll see a strap around their foreheads, and that little box will be sticking out. You can go, you can look it up. You see that in some places in America where it's practiced. That's called a phylactery. And that's from this passage. And it is symbolic. It was symbolic to them there. It's symbolic today. But it means that the law of God, the rules of God, my life is in submission to the law of God. Maybe we need to start binding it ourselves, right? To remind us. And it was a reminder to them that, the, that they're under, the, they're under the, the rule of God, the boundaries of God. And then he says to, to put it on your doorpost. Put it on your doorpost. This is a little thing. It's not the phylactery. It's called a mezuzah. Again, you can see this sometimes in Orthodox Jewish homes. You'll see, you'll, you'll see it on the, the door before you go in the house. And it's a little box. Again, it's on the door. You, uh, uh, and inside that box is a scripture from this passage. And now see if you, if you make the connection. So it's symbolic, but it does have scripture in it. So if the phylactery on the forehead and on the wrist or the hand with scripture from the rule of God was to reflect the idea that I am under the rule of God personally, individually. If it's now in the mezuzah on the door, it is to reflect what class? That the, this house is under the rule of God. Does that make sense? It's a reminder that's what it was, a reminder. And, uh, and Moses' point was that they were to constantly remember God's commands so that they could practice and obey them. You see, the Word of God is to command your individual life, but it's to command your home. And God knew what He was doing when He designed the family. I know family's perfect. You can do all the right things, as I said, and still experience rebellion and dysfunction and failure. But when you do it God's way, even though there will be dysfunction at times and failure and prodigals and all of that, guess what you do? You open up the way for God to do miracles. <clears throat> A national political platform from the 70s actually got it right. And I want to close by telling you this. Listen to how they, they said, listen to what they said. This is directly from their platform. It said, and I quote, families must continue to be the foundation of our nation. Families, not government programs, are the best way to make sure our children are properly nurtured. You get that? Families, not government programs, are the best way to make sure that our children are properly nurtured, that our elderly are cared for, that our culture and spiritual heritages are perpetuated, passed on, that our laws are observed and our values are preserved. It goes on to say, it is imperative that our government's programs, actions, officials, 
and social welfare institutions must never be allowed to jeopardize the family. And then they add this, listen, we fear the government may be powerful enough to destroy our families, but we know that the government is not powerful enough to replace our families. Did you get that? We know they can destroy the family, but they're not powerful enough. Why? And there's a reason, because man cannot replace what God created and God designed. But he can be a part of what God has created, what God has designed. And by the way, the reason the nation must never be elevated beyond the family is because nations don't make families. Families create nations. That's why it was the first institution. But you know, I want to close by telling you this. There's another kind of family, and we'll talk about this later in the month. There's another kind of family that you need to be a part of, and that's the family of God. That's the kingdom family. That's the main, that's the big family. If you've never trusted Christ, you need to trust him today so you can be a part of the big family because you can never get the small family, the, the earthly family right if you don't become a part of the big family. Why? Because the big father created the small family that you and I are a part of. So we start there. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, you can do that today. I hope you will. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not the next. You don't know if you got it tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. And so meet him today. We can help you do that. We'd love to help you do that today. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? You can call on him. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're not sure you're saved, if you're not sure you've ever become a part of the family of God, then cry out in your heart, sincerely, something like this to him. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me so I could be a part of the big family, the eternal family of God. And right now, I invite you to come into my life. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need you. I know you died for my sin. So come into my life. Forgive me. And be my Lord, Master, and Savior. Give me a home with you in heaven one day. I promise you, if you'll call on him, he'll hear that. And he'll begin this wonderful transformation in your life, making you new. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away and all things have become new. Call on him right now. Now maybe you're here in just a moment. We're going to stand, have a couple of verses of an invitation. I'll be here. Staff members will be here. Maybe there's a decision for you. If you just prayed that prayer, I want to invite you to come to one of us and just say, I prayed that prayer, Brother Ray. Uh, lift it up. I prayed that prayer to trust Christ as my Savior. We'll take it from there. Don't you worry about it. If you're watching by live stream or television or listening on radio, there will be information for you on how you can do what I've just uh, offered right here. Or maybe you prayed that prayer. Maybe you're here this morning. You say, you know what, Pastor, I've done that. But I need a church family too. That's another kind of family that we'll talk about this morning. I need a church family. And I want to join this one because I have trusted Christ as my Savior. Maybe you say, you know what? I need to be baptized like the people were earlier. And my, you may need to come and say, Pastor, I need to, I need to get that done. And we'll, we'll do it. We'll schedule a time for that. Whatever the case may be, you might want to come and pray around this altar. It's open. Use it. Take advantage of it. Come and kneel before the Lord. Talk to him. You're praying about someone or for someone or praying about some decision, some matters going on. Whatever it may be, you come, you kneel, 
at the altar. Take, we'll be gone, you know, we'll be gone. And, and for, for many of you, it, it won't be until next Sunday that we gather again. So take advantage of this moment. Don't miss it. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. Would you stand to your feet? Bradley's going to lead us, and as he leads us, I invite you to slip out. You come on. We're here to receive you. You come on. Whatever decision it is right now.